for me, like that pain point was really around just transparency and simplicity in the construction arena. So we focus on commercial construction, right? So hotels, hospitals, workplace, big complicated spaces with a lot of different stakeholders involved. And I think what happens is everybody in the industry has sort of, you know, created all these very specific silos of what they do and what they don't do. And, and it's created a lot of redundancy and sort of that type of mentality of everything being siloed and just very cumbersome, I think was really interesting to me to find a way to drive simplicity in a massive industry that could have real substantial change on the built environment, on global supply chains, on climate change, on all of these things, right? Like bringing transparency to an industry that's 5% of GDP seems like, why hasn't this been done yet? You're listening to What Fuels You, where we deep dive with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business leaders to learn more about their stories and uncover nuggets of wisdom we can all use. I'm your host, Shauna Swirland, CEO of Fuel Talent, an award-winning recruiting firm based in Seattle. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Nicole Schmidt. Nicole has worked in the construction industry for over 18 years, starting as a designer for large and small hospitality and housing projects around the country before spending the second half of her pre-source career at a variety of manufacturers in sales and business development. After teaching herself enough code to launch Source on her own, Nicole has become passionate about the ways in which technology can serve the construction industry and cognizant of the places that complicated projects will always need a human touch. Welcome, Nicole. Good to see you, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, good to see you too, Shauna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I loved doing the research um, for this podcast. It's such an interesting business. Like in doing the podcast, even just in recruiting for so many years, but in the podcast specifically, when I'm researching, I'm like, yes, these industries that, you know, people create entire businesses in that are like, ah, oh, such a good idea. I love the business that, you're, that you've started. I can't wait to get into it. So well, I'm going to hit you. you first, though, with some rapid fire. All right. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. I like it. <laughs> what is, I know that you're um a go-getter and you're a mom and you've got tons of stuff going on. So I'm curious what your best way you found is to kind of unwind and unplug. Yeah. Um, I go on walks, just take the, take our little Boston Terrier and go on a walk. Yeah. Be love alone. That. Be alone. That's my best way to unwind is to be <laughs> alone. I'm never, I'm never alone. <laughs> yeah. You're like, bye, I'm out. I'm going on a walk. What, what is the, your favorite place to go camping? Uh, the Sawtooth Mountains in Idaho. I love that. Beautiful, right? Yeah, so beautiful. So yeah. beautiful. What's the first concert that you ever attended? Uh, Faith Hill and Tim McGraw in Chicago. Oh, nice. And what about your like, favorite? I was like your 20 favorite? something. I was old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny saying 20 something is old. Uh, my favorite, my kind, my favorite kind of music. I really like hip hop. I'm a, a big like 90s hip hop person oh me too yeah I love that especially for working out it's the best yeah what's your what's your favorite concert you've ever attended I just went to the Eras tour Taylor Swift's Eras tour this um this summer it was pretty amazing we're actually going to see her again next year so 
I'll take my yes. daughter. I went with friends and I'm going to take my daughter and do my sister and niece. So it'll be fun. That'll be amazing as she's beyond talented. Um, okay. Yeah. I know that you're, you're like me, you're an Oprah fan. So if you yep. can have lunch with Oprah, what would you want to ask her? Oh, how, I think she's done a really phenomenal job of like, you know, growth as an individual and staying very grounded as well. Um, and like, how do you balance those two things of like, you know, growing and, you know, going through a lot of different stages in life that are very different maybe than where you um, grew up or came from or started out in your career and, and how do you grow and also, you know, stay grounded and stay true to who you are and what parts need to change or what parts make you uniquely you. Yeah. Did you watch the um, Golden Globes last night? I only watched little clips of it last night, but it was, it uh, actually rewatched her clip from like, yeah. years ago um, when she was accepting the, the her, um, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, she was on last yeah. night. She looks amazing. And of course, Taylor Swift was on um, another yeah. favorite of yours. She also looked incredible. Um, okay, yeah. so what do you do? This is me. I would love asking this question it's like selfishly. What do you do to set yourself up for either a good day or a good week? Oh, set myself up for a good week um, is all about calendaring, I think. Um, so Sunday night, my husband and I go through like the family calendar and like who's going to take what piece and who's doing pickup for this and who's doing drop off. And then Monday mornings, my assistant and I sit down and do the same thing. Like, okay, what's what's on the docket this week? What do we have to move? What's double booked? What, you know, now I have to be in, you know, X city. Um, so that's really helpful to set me up for a good week. And like, as I'm doing that, especially on the work side is like, you know, all of these things are really important and what's, what's actually going to drive the business forward. So that's been a really good dimension to add into it. Um, this last year is just making sure that it's very focused as we yeah. get busier and busier. It's like, how do we stay focused on what's important and, and moving? Um, so that's been for the week for the days. Um, I, so mornings are kind of chaotic cause I'm involved in like child, you know, kid drop off and all of that. My husband does pick up, which is super helpful. Um, and so chaotic morning, I'm not a, I don't really like early mornings. So, um, get up, you know, put on some yoga pants, get the kids to school and then come back. And then that's when I have my quiet time before the day starts. Cause they're at mm. school at seven 30. So then, you know, taking some time, taking the dog on a walk, having a cup of tea, you know, catching up on the news, you know, spending half hour, 45 minutes um, just by myself and then and then diving into the day. It sounds kind of divine, I have to say. Um, <laughs> what? Well, speaking of your kids, what three words would your kids use to describe you? Oh, they they would say bossy. They, they <laughs> say I am always giving them chores to do. Uh, I think they have no idea, but they would say that. <laughs> um, so they would say, um, and then I, I think they would say I was fun um, and that I was loving. Oh, those are good ones. And so how getting into like you, like how are you parenting differently than how you were raised? Like where, where are you from originally? Yeah, I'm originally from Canada. So from Abbotsford, BC, um, sort of Vancouver area, uh, big family. So five kids, four girls, one boy. And um, was raised, you know, in a really loving family, really wonderful family. 
Um, we had a lot of rules and like strictness, I think, growing up. And I imagine if I had five kids, I'd probably do the exact same thing. That's a lot of that's a lot of people to manage. Yeah. And where are you uh, in the birth order? I'm in the middle. I'm middle yeah. child. Yeah. And um, so I think maybe one of the things that we've done differently is, um, you know, really setting like expectations for our kids. I think, you know, kind of going back to the other question, my kids probably would say I have, I have expectations of how they're supposed to behave and what, you know, sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't. But, um, you know, my husband and I as parents are, um, you know, hey, here's your two choices. Like everything in life is a choice. You don't get to pick the consequences of what happened, but you absolutely get to control your entire environment. Um, you know, you can go to bed without a fight or you can go to bed with a big fight. Like those are your choices. And, you know, this one results in good things happening and this one results in not good things happening. Um, and so I think there's a lot of that that we try to make our kids understand that they have a fair amount of control over some things, you know, some things they don't. There's, you know, if yeah. my 10-year-old's being... Yeah, he's 10 and my daughter's seven. Oh, yeah, those are fun ages, though. Wow. Yeah. So tell me about your childhood. You had the um, the five of you and mm -hmm. um, your dad, I think, right, was in construction. Is that right? And your grandfather? Yep. My dad was in construction and then um, uh, sales for tools and construction equipment. And then my grandfather uh, owned his own steel company for most of his career or a couple mm -hmm. different companies. Yeah. And when you weren't in school how were you spending your time and, um, and outside of that, like within school, did you like it? Yeah, I, um, I loved school. I, when I wasn't in school, I spent my time, um, with my friends. I, I loved doing art. I would, um, I loved doing puzzles. I loved doing things like that. Um, just being creative drawing. I did a lot of drawing. Um, and, when I was in school, I loved it. I really, really loved learning. I really, I still do love learning. I, you know, was, I majored in design when I was in college and I minored in French and just always trying to learn everything I can. Yeah. And did you have a sense, um, I guess let's talk middle school age. Um, yeah. a, a, like what would your friends say if I were to meet them today, would they be surprised that you're an entrepreneur or would they be like, Oh yeah, no, that's always been her destiny. Like what were you like then? And what did you want to be? Yeah. I, so interesting. I was, um, homeschooled in middle school. So like last, um, few years of elementary school and most of middle school, I was, I was homeschooled. So I think, um, my friends would mostly be my siblings and they would say, yes, that tracks. Um, and then as I went into high school, um, you know, one of my, one of my really, you know, earliest friends from high school that I still hang out with. She's like, Oh, you've always been my business friend. You know, like she, you know, she's always like, you're, you're always that one that's doing something. So no, I mean, yeah. when we moved here, so I was, I'm what's an immigrant to the U S from Canada and um, wasn't able to work until I was well into my twenties with like a, an actual visa and permit, but it was always, um, you know, trying to figure out ways to make money and do things, babysitting, you know, washing the neighbor's windows, just, you know, whatever I could do to try to figure, figure out how to, you know, make money and do something. <laughs> yeah. And so your friends, um, how come you were homeschooled? Is that common or your mom had an idea yeah. of like giving you a different I type think, of education? Yeah. A bunch of, uh, um, all of my siblings were homeschooled at some point. And I think it was pretty common in like, um, in Canada in like that region that we lived in. Mm -hmm. Um, 
yeah, I think my mom just wanted to try it. She had some friends that had done it and thought it would be good and definitely pros and cons. I was, I was able to skip a grade when we moved down to the States. So I skipped eighth grade and just went straight into high school. But, um, Oh, wow. Seventh grade to high school. Interesting. And, um, what brought you guys to the States? Uh, my dad's work actually. So he got transferred or, you know, got the opportunity to take a transfer. And so, um, they decided they wanted to do it. And, um, most of my family, um, is about split now. Half, half have since moved back to Canada, including my parents. Um, and then half kind of ended up either loving the States and staying here or meeting someone and getting married and staying here. So, yeah. yeah. And at what stage of your life would you say that you realized that you had like an entrepreneurial bug? I would say probably in college or like right after college, I kept trying to like start my own businesses in college. Um, I, you know, had done a couple since I graduated. So, you know, it would work and then have my own business work, have my own business. And so, um, I think it was really trying to find the right thing to, mm-hmm. to really pour my efforts into. Were you initially thinking interior design? I know that's what you studied at, um, the Art yep. Institute of Illinois. And so how did you decide, I mean, coming from Canada, I always love understanding people's choices. Like what else yeah. were you looking at and how did you even discover that school? Yeah, so I um, I wanted to be an interior designer since I was very young. I remember, you know, being in Canada, building little tiny homes in sh- like you know, like doll homes in shoe boxes or things. Like yeah. I just really loved the idea of space and the built environment, and um, so I wanted to do that forever. So when um, I was graduating, it was really trying to look at um, find a place that would work well for that career um Mm -hmm. and so um because we still didn't have green cards i was here on like an l2 visa so because of that i wasn't able to get in-state tuition so we were living in vancouver washington at the time and i I see your hat go huskies so a lot of my friends you know went up to seattle and um or went over to eastern washington but um since i wasn't going to be able to get in-state tuition i was like well if i'm paying out of state tuition somewhere i want to at least go out of state um and and get that experience as well so my sister was living in chicago at the time and so i started researching schools and then one of my other sisters was living in toronto so i started researching schools in toronto and in chicago and um really found that the the art institute had a really nice balance of what I was looking for. And um, I love the idea of being in a bigger city and um, really just, you know, having a, a different experience. I'd, you know, grown up and always lived on the West Coast and in the Pacific Northwest specifically. So really just looking for something that was like a different experience geographically, um, just, you know, city size, all of those things. Was, yeah, it was, Chicago is such I was a ready cool for a change. place though. Yeah. So did you stay, tell me such about your cool career place. and like kind of what launched you right out of college. Did you um, start working right away or what was your path? And, and looking back, yes. like, was it the right path? Yeah, I had, a, I had a great and really fun path right out of college. So I, um, I had actually gone like the... Um, the spring right before my last semester, I had gone on a group trip with a bunch of friends to Jamaica and I was living in Chicago at the time and was really trying to like get, find a way to get back to the Northwest. And so I was talking to one of the people on the trip and I was saying, yeah, I need to get an internship for my final you know, semester at college. And um, I'm trying to, 
you know, I, I have a few that I could do in Chicago, but I'm trying to find one in Oregon so that, you know, in Portland so that I can uh, move back and kind of have something anchored. And she's like, oh, I actually work at a huge architectural firm. And I was like, what? So uh, she connected me with the director of interiors. And, you know, I went through the interview process and landed the internship with them. But it was great. You know, I worked directly with a couple of the principals and um, ended up being there for uh, five or six years. And then um, did a lot of hotel and restaurant design and some housing design, but mostly hospitality. And it was really fun. I very much enjoyed um, having that experience to just dive in and That's sink or so swim cool. and get it figured out and do it. So, yeah. yeah. And um, did you think that you would do that ongoing? I mean, I know you've done the design and then you were also, mm-hmm. you know, worked on the manufacturing side. Totally yep. different. One's kind of, I think of it in my brain as different. Like, how would you compare yeah. those experiences? Yeah, I think one of the things that I didn't realize as, you know, an interior designer is just like the broad set of skills that you get with any job, right? Like you think, okay, I'm going to do this job and this applies here. But, um, you know, you're really learning a lot of project management skills. You're really learning um, a lot of soft skills, a lot of client management skills. You're also learning selling, right? Like you're selling one of the hardest things to do, which is an idea, not even selling a product or anything that exists. So you know, you're, you're selling to someone, Hey, this is, this is going to look really nice. You should spend $30 million bringing this exact vision to reality. Right. And I don't right. think I realized like the, all those different skill sets, I definitely wanted to do design. Um, you know, went into it thinking that would be my career, but you know, like so many of us, things change and, you know, for one reason or another, you want to try something new. And so, um, ended up going to, you know, the sales side and being a manufacturer's rep, um, for a few different companies. And I think it was that, that sort of process of selling that was my thread through that I really found that I am very much driven by people and by helping people. And so whether that's helping a person, um, you know, design a building and create a space for whatever activity they're trying to accomplish, or if it's helping designers by finding, helping them find the right products for their projects, that that's really, um, where I get a lot of value is just, you know, engaging with people and meeting new people and, and ultimately like helping people solve problems. And yeah, that's well, I'm really guessing you're um, an extrovert. I am. I am not an extrovert. Yes. <laughs> very. I, am uh, too. I index very big E. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Like literally like off the charts, although I'm not sure about you, but I changed a little bit during COVID or at least I had an yeah. awareness that I could yep. kind of like access more of my introversion. And um, it was a good forcing function to just be like, you know what, I'm going to have like, whatever they call it, like JOMO, like joy, joy of yeah. missing out. I used to have like yes. total FOMO. Um, <laughs> yeah, That's absolutely. so funny. What were they yeah, manufacturing? The you said you went into manufacturing and like what, what were the things that you were selling? Yeah, so tile, various types of flooring. And then the last job I had before I started Source was... Um, countertops like quartz countertops granite countertops stone countertops um things like that yeah and so interestingly i feel like some people um you know would have just kind of gone exactly as an extension like let me just now continue to sell countertops or tile but just do it for myself like start my own company but in something that's Mm -hmm. really comfortable versus you like kind of really pivoted and found a pain point, which I would love for you to describe, and then like taught yourself how to code and like went kind of really doubled down in a way of like, um, I'm going to kind of do what I kind of know, but also be uncomfortable in what I don't know. Yeah. 
like that's unique yeah that being uncomfortable in what you don't know i think is like probably a, a lasting trait through many entrepreneurs is that there's you have an idea of some of the things that you're going to want to do but you know that there's this like steep hill and you're just going to have to figure out how to get there yeah. um so for me like that pain point was really around um just transparency and simplicity in the construction arena so we focus on commercial construction right so um hotels hospitals workplace you know lots of big complicated spaces with a lot of different stakeholders involved and i think what happens is everybody in the industry has sort of you know created all these very specific silos of what they do and what they don't do and and it's created a lot of just redundancy right where you're you're only giving this much information to this person and then you're giving this much information to this person and it's really hard like it you know an example is when you're selecting product right it's like oh well we don't tell the design teams how much things cost we tell the contractors how much things cost well that's great except the design teams are the ones selecting everything and planning the project so if they're planning it and using the wrong things then it's over budget when the contractor prices it then we just get to do the whole thing over again um and sort of that type of mentality of um everything being siloed and just very cumbersome um i think was really interesting to me to find a way to drive simplicity in a in a massive um in a massive industry that could have real substantial change on the built environment on global supply chains on climate change on all of these things right like bringing transparency to an industry that's five percent of gdp seems like why hasn't this been done yet yeah and so it hasn't been done are there competitors there's um there i always say there's like three components of source so there's sort of the like help me find exactly and make decisions around what we should be using and then there's the second part around the documentation and and really fine tuning that decision and then the third part about purchasing the products and getting it to site so i would say we certainly have competitors in each of those three arenas what we don't have um, is somebody that has taken this like a to z look at it and said look the only way we're going to be able to change this is by being involved at the end and pushing that data back to the people making decisions at the beginning and then having this virtuous cycle where we can continue to um, you know, elevate the industry by bringing transparency to it and by saying, hey, mm -hmm. here's, you're trying to find something, here's where that's going to land. Um, and so we don't really have a competitor as far as somebody that's doing that from A to Z um, on a national or global scale like we are. Yeah, but we certainly have competitors in, you know, succinct portions of what we do. Little siloed parts of it. And so, mm -hmm. um, I don't know that you need to, or maybe you want to give a specific example of like using names, but like, it'd be super helpful for me to give an example yeah. of how a customer partners with you and who are the customers. Like if somebody's listening, that's like, oh, sweet, Shauna, you had this person listen. Who, yeah. who is that person that you're selling into? Yeah. So we are typically selling into like an asset manager or a project manager, someone that owns a piece of real estate and is developing it or remodeling it um, for a specific purpose. So an example would be, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a hotel owner and I have a portfolio of properties or I, and I am uh, renovating the Marriott in the downtown of the city where I live. 
And so I've hired an architect and designer. They're on board to help find the products and come up with the plans and, you know, do all the very many things that architects and designers do. Um, and then I've hired a general contractor who's going to coordinate labor and who's going to, you know, coordinate getting the thing built. Um, and then where source comes in is we really act as like their purchasing agent. So um, we're the ones that say, okay, here's all the things that are going to be purchased. Either um, here we're going to slice off this bucket of items and these few things will go to the general contractor. Um, you know, all the, all the commodities like steel, rebar, all of that is going to go to the, the contractor. We don't do those pieces. But okay, the furniture, the finishes for the hotel, the carpet, the wall covering, the tile, the um, decorative lighting, all the case goods in the units, all the soft seating, that's all gonna go to the purchasing agent. And so what we do is we contract with the owner um, to do that. And then we coordinate timing of delivery with the general contractor and we coordinate you know, design intent and shop drawings and like what those pieces actually look like with the design team. So we're really, responsible for making their design visions, you know, realized in a physical product um, and, you know, bid those out. So then we coordinate with vendors from around the world. So we might have 40 different vendors that we're coordinating to make sure everything gets on the ships at the right time, gets to the warehouse um, and ultimately gets to the job site in time for the contractor to install it. Or, if, you know, maybe we're, um, we have some furniture installers that are bringing the furniture in. So it's, it's really that that coordination and, and purchasing piece. And so the ultimate end customer there in that scenario is Marriott. Well, it's the hotel owner, which you kind of think would be a Marriott, but Marriott's actually like a franchise. Yeah. So or that's what I mean like, though, as an example, yeah. it's not, it's, it's Marriott. Yeah, exactly. And so then, yeah. and then is it, so it's a technology where then they give access to certain aspects of the technology to either the contractor or the designer or yep, is that how exactly. it works? Okay. Yeah, it's very much like a marketplace, right? So I think yeah. the interesting thing about this industry is most of the purchases in this industry are run off of Excel. And so there's very little transparency into like, how far out is my tile? How far along is this? You know, where is this in the production queue? Um, and so we're really building um, transparency around that post-purchase process, as well as around the decision-making process so that mm -hmm. everyone can say, okay, what's the tile we need for this? We need it to be X dollars a square foot and it needs to be here by June 5th. Okay, what are our options that fit in that? What meets the design criteria? All or right, now so, we've got that It's so down. incredibly brilliant. I am just thinking about it from the perspective of yeah. very small potatoes, but like when we did, when we built like our a, house... We had, yeah. moved from New we had moved from New York and we had only lived in apartments. And it was like, yeah. we're making these decisions about the faucet before we're yeah. even broken ground. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I don't know if I should go high on the, I don't know what other decisions yeah. I'm making and in what order. Yeah. And so yeah. it's very difficult, especially because I, and I said to the um, builder at the end, as I, he's a friend and I was like, as a, friend I'm telling you to make the experience better for your customer to give them like an entire like notebook at the beginning almost yeah to um to kind of let them know what the whole project's going to look like and what decisions are going to be made and what the deadlines are going to be so that we can budget with relative information not just like in kind of siloed decision-making yeah. efforts. It's, it was bits and pieces. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Interesting. And so what's the business model, Nicole? Like how do you guys make money 
And yeah. is it the same business model that you launched with in 2018 or 19? Yeah. So not the same business model we launched with. We were um, a subscription base for architects and designers at that point. Um, and we've since really um, switched into a marketplace model. So free for architects and designers to use, free for industry professionals to like plan their projects on. And then where we monetize is on the purchase of goods. So very much a marketplace model where we, um, you know, we're negotiating a fee or a percentage of the project. Um, and then we give the owner transparency around that. So we're negotiating that with the owner when we sign the contract. Mm. And then then we're able to say, okay, here's the actual price for all of your goods. And here's, you know, the the fee that we've negotiated that we'll add on to that to, to pay for our uh, technology and for our team to support this project. Um, but yeah, that, that's how we monetize. And yeah, it was definitely different than where we started. Interesting. And so how's the growth been looking over the years? How was COVID for the business? Yeah, COVID was really interesting for the business. So one of the things um, that we launched in COVID was the actual purchase, the last component of the, the platform, which is the purchasing side. So we had the decision-making part, you know, that discovery part, and then launched the purchasing side in in COVID. And we were um you know definitely got some tailwinds from that where when we launched it that first quarter um you know we were were able to do some some good volume that first quarter but then the next year so that was in the end of 21 um the next year we grew 10x off of that the following year we grew you know another 10x off of that and um and have have really been busy (laughs) this year yeah you know just making sure that we do it for you yeah and i think just really uh, you know, we've been really strategic about what goes on the to don't list, right? It's like, what's, what is driving the business forward? What is that prioritization? Where do we need to focus? And what is, what is something that can, you know, wait a quarter or wait two quarters or, or just fall off the list completely that we, we don't need to do. Mm, okay. And that's, and that's been one of the hardest things I think with the business is there's so much low hanging fruit in construction as far as problems oh my to gosh, solve. It's right? endless. There's so many, so many ways that you could um, improve the experience. Oh, so yeah. focus and, and really making sure we're staying in the right lanes has been, um, we're getting better at it. We're certainly getting better at it, but it's been a challenge. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think you're doing great. I mean, it's incredible. So how did you fund the business initially? I know that you've raised, I think, um, an A round up to an A yeah, round. Yeah, we just raised an A this summer. Yep. Yeah. Congrats on that. And especially because like, I know that we've, we talked a little bit before we started recording about like, you know, I've had several females on here and and many that have raised capital from venture funding and just even friends and family, but it's like so much more challenging for women. Um, the statistics are crazy, like less than 2% of, um, capital goes to women or or something like that, something crazy. And especially in a male dominated industry, like, yeah. How were you able to do it? And how many like frogs did you have to kiss? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy, right? Like the less than 2% of VC capital goes to women is, is crazy. Right. And um, I don't know the and... statistics. You might know this because it's like your world, but there's something around the ROI on actually um, investing in women. They, they produce yeah. better outcomes. Yeah. 
yeah, statistically. So I'm like, why Some... the hell are women not getting more funding? It makes no sense. <laughs> Someone summed up the funding. Like they're like, to put that in perspective, you know, the, the last year that Juul raised a big round of capital, like Juul e-cigarettes, oh, yeah, the cigarettes. That, that one company raised more than all venture all women combined venture companies combined yeah. yeah i read um, that i read that you said that in, yeah. a, in, a, in an interview that's cr- that actually shocked me and then there was someone else who said i think it was amy um from riveter she's a friend of mine yeah. she was on the podcast but she said something about like there's more men named john on publicly yeah. traded boards than all women combined i'm like what? yes exactly it's it's crazy so i mean i think one of the things that i learned the hard way that I would love, you know, to, to share forward is really that, um, you know, a lot of the fundraising advice and here's how you go raise around and here's what you do um, is done by people who have successfully raised venture capital um, Mm. that may not look like me or, or um, have had similar experiences as me. And so I don't think I really realized what that meant in practice um, right away. And so, you know, you hear a lot of like, you know, make your hit list, do your research on the VCs, you know, go really working it very much like a sales funnel, right? Like here's your top of funnel, pitch them, try to get your, try to get in front of them, get the meeting set, pitch them, have your B list first, then you go to your A list, you know, you just kind of work down the funnel till you get, you know, a couple term sheets at the end of the process. And, and so it's like, okay, well, that's what you do. So, you know, here's that process that I'm going to do. And I think what I found um, is that that, specific process didn't work for me. So whether that's because I'm, you know, I'm a woman or because that's my personal style or a combination of those two or whatever the reasons were is that, that, um, you know, the process that worked for me was actually being a lot more like rifle approached. And so, you know, in, in the sales world, it was being much more like a hunter, right. than like, a um, I don't know, like a fisherman. So, um, so what I would do is, um, you know, and I, I plan on just continuing this process if we raise more capital, but really um, taking the opportunity to to research like a few, a handful, maybe five to 10 funds that I think would be really good strategic fits for our company. Mm-hmm. So instead of finding like a hundred people that play in the space that we play in, like I'm going to find five to 10 that I think would be value add to the company um, that I research the partners that they've said smart things in you know in their media appearances that i agree with that i that i feel like have similar values i look at their twitter feeds you know i just try to find out as much about them as a human. what are you looking for when you're looking like what when you say similar values um, like how do you even assess that through that research so i mean i think um you know one of the things that was important to me and it's nice to see that the industry has changed but somebody that's not like growth at all costs, growth at all costs, growth yeah, at all exactly. costs, that it's like, you know, as we're, as we've, so, you know, kind of going back to the other question is we bootstrapped um, the business for about 18 months, then raised a pre-seed and a seed round, and then just raised our series A. And so for me, um, right before we raised the series A, we were a profitable company. And so, you know, now we're reinvesting in the company and we have a, a 12 month path back to profitability. And so for us, it's sort of this cycle of like profitability and investment, profitability and investment. Well, that's brilliant. That's the way to go if you can. <laughs> well, and it's also like, you know, it, it's, it's works out really well now, but it's also born of necessity, right? Like 
less than 2% of women raise venture capital. So we got to have a backup plan, like standing yeah. on our own two feet is our backup totally. plan. And, and so um, for me, just making sure that I have an investor that is aligned with that, that, you know, obviously I'm aligned with growth, that my investors are aligned with growth. We all want to see growth. Um, you know, that's, that's a very important part of being a venture backed business. And that is, you know, not to be minimized. We just don't want to do growth at all costs, right? right we want exactly. to do growth customer first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And really sustainable, long, long view growth, make sure that we're not making a decision that's good for this quarter, making sure we're making a decision that's good for the company um, five years from now. Yeah. And who's advising you about all this? Like, I mean, you've obviously got just kind of natural business acumen. You've got a sales background. You're great with people. You love people. But like, you know, understanding cap tables and understanding yeah. growth tra trajectories and all of that just seems so intimidating when it's a first run like who's, yeah. who's your in your corner because you know and you and I talked about this when we first met like the the kind yeah. of lonely at the top thing where yeah. you want to be vulnerable but you can't be too vulnerable with your board and you can't be too vulnerable yeah. with your team and your husband's probably a great partner but like enough's enough yeah. I don't really want to hear about the source anymore like so <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> who who do you talk to about this stuff that where you can really kind of be vulnerable and be like I don't know yeah, we, I have a group of, there's um, four other uh, female entrepreneurs. And so the five of us meet fairly regularly, maybe once a month or so mm -hmm. um, as much as we can. So they're a good sounding board for me too. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've joined and been part of like different organizations. Like I was part of a Portland incubator experiment when I first um, started the company here in Portland. I was part of a group called Accelerate. So I think finding nice. finding a good group for the stage that my company is in has been really helpful. And then just, you know, being doing two things in those groups. One is being as helpful as possible to people that that I can help, and then mining that group for help when I need it. Um, so you know, in the early days, it was like, okay, let me let me find out you know, who can help me learn about venture capital, right? Like I went from like my complete understanding of venture capital was I think Facebook has raised money at some point was my mm. full <laughs> complete understanding of venture capital to like, okay, now I can like walk through deal terms and understand a cap table. And, um, and so, you know, it's like, okay, read the book, venture deals, do this, you know, understand this, you know, here's a bunch of articles and things to research. So, I mean, you know, it's that love of learning, I think, I, one of my favorite things about being an entrepreneur is you only have a job for like six months. So yeah, my, my, my focus gets to, okay, now I get to learn all about HR. Now I, you know, when you're raising money, then I'm going to learn all about, uh, you know, when we were first raising money, I need to learn about venture capital. So that's the thing I'm going to become an expert in now. And now we're hiring people. So now I'm going to learn about onboarding and company yeah. culture and that. And, you know, now we're growing. And so we have to sort of think about how the teams are aligned and what people are doing. So now I'm going to. Yeah, there's so know, many. I've spoken on a few panels about this kind of stuff. There's so many things to think about. You can always call me offline yeah. because there's so many things I've seen startups do right and wrong. Yeah. Even around like overtitling or too early yes. or hiring for today, but not for three to five years from now or, um, yep. you know, hiring people who aren't meant to be working at a startup, even though they think it sounds sexy, but they don't really have the stomach for it or they, have, yep. they don't have the support system around it. Um, yep. I think yeah. those two things, the overtitling and the, um, I also am like an incessant question asker. I just ask questions and ask questions of everyone 
you know, and I think a couple of the questions that I asked over and over as I was starting are like, what mistakes do you see people making with their teams? Um, And what are the main reasons that you see startups fail? Right. It's like, what are the things? And it was like, um, they run out of money. Like it's the yeah. number one reason startups fail. They run out of capital. So don't run out of capital because nothing else matters if you can't pay your bills. Um, and co-founder conflict. Um, those are the top two reasons that startups yeah. fail. And then team stuff or from my totally anecdotal, like, you know, experience. Um, and then the team things were, you know, the biggest issues are like not hiring the right type of person like yes a startup a generalist is it for today is it for five years from now you know what are what are you hiring for and then the over titling yeah um, and so and the early people careful. need to be definitely a little bit more of a swiss army knife than a total expert yeah. because like you said you're like yeah. one day i'm the office manager and the next day i'm hr and the next day i'm a recruiter and the next day i'm it yeah. and that's yeah. just part of being in a startup and um I have so many examples, you know, mostly I think we have like a less than 1% fall off rate where they don't work out. But the the ones, the couple placements that we've made that haven't worked out that weren't the right fit were like almost like too slow for a startup. Like the the person was big company mentality and they wanted to like, um, you know, put out something to bid to 10 big agencies are like big agencies. And we yeah. don't have the funding for that. Like we don't have no budget yeah. for that. Like just figure it out. You're like, you do no, it I just need you to do it by Friday. Just, yeah. Yeah. Like I just need this done. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the like, you know, I got to go cause I got to go to Pilates. It's like, no, this has to be your baby and it has to be a top yeah. priority. Um, and somebody that's genuinely passionate about what you're building, not just trying to hit the like unicorn status payday because yeah. that doesn't happen that often. Although yeah. based on what you're saying, I think that you're like, you're headed in a good direction. Um, tell <laughs> well, me more about, tell that. me more about like how you are able to, um, you know, like keep up with all the trends and the, and all the things happening and all of the data. Like, how do you make sure that that stays clean and stays current and accurate? Cause aren't you having like, you're, you're exporting a bunch of photos from all the products from like, I read like. 1900 brands. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of stuff to have to navigate and deal with. Yeah. So we, um, we worked really early on to try to create different data pipelines for manufacturers to upload their data to the platform. So whether they have, you know, uh, all the way from like, okay, we have an API set up, which is very rare. There's less than a handful of people in this industry that have that already done, mm-hmm. um, to, to like, okay, we're getting, um, you know, data feeds sent over once a week, or we're getting a CSV file once a month or, you know, whatever that looks like. So in the early days, we really did kind of whatever we needed to do to get that on the platform. But as we've, Mm -hmm. you know, gotten more users and, um, and, and built more technology around automating that we've been able to really like reduce the friction around that experience. So um, I think for us, it's really about one of the values that we bring to the table is the ability to normalize all that data, right? So like if you're thinking about fabric manufacturers, um, you know, there's codes that it needs to be met around fire resistance. And so one might call it FR treated, another one might call it fire rated, another one might call it fire resistant. So they'll all call it different things and then give it this like California bulletin code um, that it meets. And so we're able to normalize all of that data across a variety of different manufacturers so that when you search for it and you're trying to look for something that might meet that code requirement, um, that it's that you're comparing apples to apples as much as possible. 
Okay, interesting. Cool. Yeah. And so yeah. then do you work with um, different companies to get kind of um, different samples? Like how do you, uh, there's a lot of like logistics stuff too, like all the operations, all the logistics. Yeah. How do you ensure that that runs smoothly? Like what, I know you only have, I think you have not only, but kind of only 15 employees. Yeah. And it sounds like you're just like handling a monstrosity of uh, data and products and customers yeah and... yeah so we have um we have about 53 employees oh 53 um, so, i read it wrong yeah okay. so you have okay. 53 employees. Yeah. so um but yeah so on samples like okay we can go back to that fabric example if you know the designer or the building owner wants to see a sample of that fabric they'll request it on the platform and then that will automatically send a ping to the brand and the brand We'll send that directly to them. The vendor will, mm. um, and so the vendor will send over that fabric, and then for the actual order, so that say they're like, okay, great, this fabric looks great. This is in our price. It's in our lead time. This is the what we're going to go with for the draperies in this hotel. So then um, we manage um, sending over that purchase order to the vendor and say, okay, vendor A send your fabric to vendor B, who's then gonna turn it into draperies. So we facilitate that um, shipping. Um, and we have an internal logistics team that manages all of that. Mm. So um, so they facilitate that this you know fabric gets sent from vendor A to vendor B, and then um, vendor B then sends it to the hotel and then they install it or, or have an installer do it, but yeah. yeah. And so um, you say, you're saying hotel, what are the different industries or different um partners and customers that you're doing business with like what what's the breakdown yeah so for the verticals that we work in we we do you know more than 60 percent of our um revenue right now comes from the hospitality industry uh, we mm -hmm. also do a fair amount in different types of housing so multifamily housing like if you think of all the amenity spaces things like that mm. um, we do student housing public and private um, and we do senior housing as well. So, um, you know, a senior care center, um, different areas um, within that. We, we work with those clients as well. We do a little bit of workplace, um, but that's probably our smallest segment to date. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, obviously it's kind of endless what you can build because you're, you can touch on so many different areas. You're not limited yeah. at all. Um, and I know that yeah. one of the things that is important to you um, you've talked a little bit about transparency, um, and I'm sure that your customers super benefit from that. How much weight do they place on your passion and interest in like sustainability and, um, you know, kind of doing good? Yeah. I mean, for us, we're really there to meet every customer where they're at, right? So some have very high requirements. We want everything to be red list free. We want no chemicals of concern. We want you know, the highest of the highest standard of sustainability. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to serve the products and leverage the data to get them the, the products that meet that criteria. Um, and some, you know, it's not important at all. And so, you know, that's really comes down to us trying to educate them and say, hey, you know, like, here's here's an example of a few products that would work this one you know they're similar price points this one has a better story behind it um, and i think that what we find is that every customer is interested in making their end users experience better right mm. so it's really i think how you how you frame that for certain people you know in the northwest we're 
you know, it's easy to get passionate and get buy-in on sustainability. And, you know, in other parts of the country, that's not the way, right? Like I went to visit yeah. my sister in Toronto and they don't even have recycling. So it's, you know, it, it I know depends. it's not Everything. unbelievable. And they're like, no, we don't compost, no recycling. Yeah. yeah it's so <laughs> exactly. different. Do you have so, customers you know, um, nationally and globally, or are you just in the U.S. right now? Uh, we're just in the U.S. right now. Yep. So all across the U.S., every every time zone in the U.S., but um, currently just uh, one one country. And do you have do you have plans to expand globally? We do. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We're looking forward to that. Yeah. What are some of your other growth plans? Like if we sit down and call it, let's just be easy right now since it's like one day at a time, but like one year and, and <laughs> yeah. you can look back and you've had like 10x growth. Um, it's not always about growth. Like what will make you feel yeah. like I'm doing a kick-ass job. I am in the right seat. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the metrics that we track here um, is, you know, would you recommend Source as a good place to work? So, you know, even with this massive growth that we've seen over the last few years, we We've consistently rated, you know, above 90% or higher as our employees saying that they would say source is a good place to work. So I would say that's a, that's a huge metric for me, regardless of, of the growth of the company is like, are we taking care of the people that work here? Um, like, first and foremost, because that's the right thing to do as a human being. Um, and, you know, it also happens to be good for the company as well. So, um, you know, I think that's always a key metric for me is are, are we taking care of the team appropriately so they can take care of our clients appropriately. Um, and then another metric is, I mean, is growth for me. I'm, I'm super excited about the potential of the company and we're just, you know, if, if I think about where we have to go, um, it's a really, really big vision and goal. We want to be the largest platform for commercial construction products, you know, on the planet. And so, that, that's a big goal. And so if we don't want it to take 600 years to get there, we got to bite off a fair chunk every year. So, you know, our, our denominator is bigger now. So I don't think it'll be a 10 X, um, you know, in a year, but I'd love to say that we, you know, doubled or tripled. So, um, you know, really, really looking forward to continuing to grow the company because that means that we're providing value, um, you know, something of value to our clients and that we're, we're doing something right and we're making someone's life better. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so how will you continue to um, hold on to not your personal values that you would change, but your personal values as that as they can touch um, all of your employees, all of your customers, because yeah. that's one of the challenges in growth is that yeah. you're like, oh, shit, I used to know everybody's names. I knew all of our clients. I knew yep. kind of every moving part of the business. And this there's this weird kind of moment where it's like, it's exciting to not have that, but it's also scary to kind of like, let yeah. go. Well, that's, how do you, that's what are your, what are your Oprah. values? <laughs> that's why I need to talk to Oprah. Remember? That's what I, I want to learn from her. Yeah. <laughs> no, how, well, I mean, just, I, yeah, totally. I think for me, it's, um, one of the things that I've, I, I struggle with that and I'm sort of in the midst of struggling with that is that, you know, the, a team of 53 is, you know, much different than a team of 15. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I did know everyone's, obviously I still know everyone's name. I, I hope I can at least remember 53 names, but, um, you know, it's like, I know, I know everyone's name and what they do, but I don't know their story. Right. Whereas when it was 15 people, I knew their cats, I knew their family, I knew totally. you know, what they were doing. Right. All the, all those things. And so, um, for me, you know, one of the things that we're going to do this year is um, start doing skip levels so that I can, you know, at least, you know, one or two people a week that I can just meet and have coffee with and, and just, you know, engage with 
with people. But I think one of the things that's been helpful for me as a founder is, you know, talking with people who are maybe like one or two sort of stages ahead of me in growth um, and learning from them. Um, and so, you know, it's like, the, the people who are like 10 stages ahead of me in growth or 100 stages ahead of me in growth um, certainly have valuable, many, many valuable lessons, but maybe not as many um, front of mind for them that I can action today. Mm-hmm. So if it's, you know, somebody that's, um, you know, that's one or two stages ahead, that's really helpful. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know, you know, when you have when you have little kids, it's great to know somebody with a toddler when you have a baby right because then you're getting their hand-me-downs oh yeah if they're just or even just like now we're in like college i have a kid that's in college and i have other kid you know another one's going to be applying to college but like it was helpful for me to have friends that could tell me what that process looks like or in any phase of life it's always good to have your kind of trusted that's just just an inch ahead of you right so it's like when you have a when you have a newborn like that's you're like valuable insights from your friends that have kids in college you know we have um you know friends with kids of all different ages like they have valuable insights however by the time my kids are going to go to college it's It's, probably going to be a totally different different process anyways right and so really i think for me as a founder is trying to find um entrepreneurs that i really look up to and you know we have some fabulous entrepreneurs here in oregon and um, like i have time in a couple weeks to meet with um you know kim the founder of salt and straw ice cream and so like you know she's really known for being a culture warrior and a culture ambassador and so i'm gonna like learn everything i can from her and so i think you know finding people that can just give you and and she is much more than one one or two phases ahead of me but i'm i'm cheating on that one because she's so brilliant so um just you know really finding incremental ways to um to learn and and grow to that next layer as a ceo and as a founder and as a person and what's your, what's been your recruiting strategy so far and how do you, you know, right now it's a little bit easier to draw in talent because there's more access to talent than when you first started, but yeah. um, what has your strategy been and what are your long-term plans for like the people side of growth? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like a lot of other startups, we started with, you know, referral based, right? It's like, oh, we need to fill this. Does anybody know someone that does this? And, um, you know, I think maybe more than 80%, I would have to pull the numbers, but I think, you know, almost all of our employees have come from a referral with a, with a handful of exceptions. Um, so that, that was a strong indicator moving forward uh, or in the past. And I think moving forward, um, one of the things, you know, that we have work to do on is, um, you know, we're hitting that stage where we, you know, we can't continue to rely just on that, that we need to make sure that we have a good reputation as an employer, that we um, are out there in the market, that we are actively hunting for really great high quality talent. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's sort of our next evolution as a company is is getting into that instead of referral based, really getting into recruiting um, as as its own, you know, skill set within the company yeah like a whole with its own focus yeah Yeah, that makes exactly that makes sense well i'm excited to see you grow i know you're gonna um hit lots of lots of milestones and i'll be cheering you on along the way um and you're on a personal level how um i know that you're setting yourself up for a good morning a good day a good week 
But how are, how do you balance your time as far as or do you do time blocking? Do you do um, like whole, uh, I guess some people put like pauses on their emails. Like, are you a person who believes in multitasking? Like, what's your style yeah. of yeah? I am. Work I am the day? not. I try not to multitask because I tend to not be very good at it. Um, I. I tend to try to focus on the task at hand. So whether that's I'm in a meeting or doing email or focus on some deep work project that I'm working on, um, I try to be wholly focused on that. So I, I break my email up into sort of blocks between meetings where I'll catch up on Slack and catch up on email um, and and get back to people there. And my team knows like, hey, if it's a if it's a hot something that needs my eyes on it right away text is my like that signal so text me text me when you need something immediately and say hey check in slack or check in email um so that i can get my eyes on things but i try to break my day up so that it's um allows me to focus on what's at hand i have a tendency to get distracted easily and like look at the shiny new penny um and so um really trying to say okay here's here's my block of time where I'm going to catch up on everything that's in my Slack channels and here's email. And then here's some meetings that I'm going to do. Um, and then, you know, in the hybrid world, just blocking um, in person, well, I wouldn't even call it in person. I, I would call it like makeup days together. Like here's a day where I'm going to have a bunch of things where I can be camera off all day and just, you know, not have to, not have to worry about being on. And then here's things where I'll be in person or I'll be on, you know, sales calls or, you know, all team calls or things like that, where I want to, you know, be a little more presentable. So, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just sort well, of like my, my men- mental break days, mental <laughs> break days. I love that. And so my, my final question for you is what fuels you? What fuels me? Um, I think it's, for me, it always comes down to people, whether it's, you know, my family, my kids, um, you know, new experiences with friends. Um, I love traveling, but I think, you know, when I think about what fills me up and the, the thing that I, you know, couldn't live without in this world is, is that people connection that I'm very, very, like we talked about at the beginning, I'm very motivated by helping people, um, by connection, you know, high index as an extrovert. And, um, you know, I think some of the most exciting things that we get back from our customers is, oh my gosh, this was so amazing. Like source made this or this person at source or whatever it is, like made this project so successful. We Uh are excited to work with you guys on like every project moving forward. And we just had one of those come through the other day and I was just like, so happy. Right. It's like, you think this thing might work. And then those are the moments where you're like, no, it is working. This is great. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. If you'd like to check out past episodes to hear from more business leaders, go to fueltalent.com backslash podcast. And if you have a minute, please leave a review and rating on your favorite podcast app or share this episode with a friend or colleague. Please share any feedback or interview suggestions for other guests by sending a message to podcast at fueltalent.com. I'm Shauna Swirland, and thanks again for listening.